Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we speak with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. But first, let's take a look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And let's start. The Tiger is back looking for a green jacket at the Masters. This is a story that you were all over. Evan. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Let's not get to a story he was all over. Let's talk about my oh, blind, man. Michael Barr's Masters pool blind pulling of names. Sashnik draws T Woods. Oh God, T Woods. Bloody blah blah. I'll be checking blah. my Twitter feed Sunday at about six fifty-two <laughs> to see if I'm if I need to watch. <laughs> Is Ricky Fowler still good? Yeah. <laughs> I got Ricky Fowler. Hey, I'm sure he'll have a very nice hat on. That's what I know about Rick, or, uh, Ricky Fowler. Tiger Woods, yes, he's back, but is the golf industry back as well? Yeah, there is. Every time we see Tiger put together a few good tournaments, there is this big, big ado within the golf world. He obviously drives ratings. It's great if he's playing well at a tournament that you are organizing. It's going to bring more people to the game, etc. cetera. Uh, but from the overall standpoint, there is a lot of data out there, and a lot of experts will tell you that Tiger Woods – being a good golfer, playing well in the major stages, uh, does not bring more people to your average municipal golf course. That is where the bulk of the golf business is. It's a $70 billion business globally. Most of that is not the PGA Tour. Most of that is not the Valspar Championship or even the Masters. Most of that is just average courses uh, that employ people, that bring average Joes out on Saturdays and Sundays or maybe after work on weekdays. Uh, and Tiger Woods playing well doesn't really have an effect on that side of the, uh, of the business. Or he's trying to tell me that this is about golf takes too long to play, it costs too much, this sort of that change in demographic, that the same issues that are affecting, let's say, baseball – that they're trying to get faster and they want millennials. Like millennials aren't into golf. They're into the top golf and they want to go and suck down some beers and hit some balls and have some wings and, and you know, an hour or two and not play for a four or five hour round on a Saturday. Well, speaking of beer, there is a dilly dilly silly oh, silly mess where going. that is going on here. And it, there was a, a, a story that came out uh well, it was that, you know, that they didn't want people in the gallery to shout dilly dilly. I don't think they want them shouting anything. That's but... the pro- that's the thing. It, it's not about dilly dilly. There, there's no list. Don't say dilly dilly. Now, of course, Bud Light loved it and they sent out a whole bunch of T-shirts. They love that. I was going to ask you if you knew what it was advertising, if you knew the product and you do. Good for you. Dilly dilly. Oh, I see. that. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, look, you don't. If you're a, a true golfer, you don't want the gallery shouting, you know, you're the man while Tiger's in the middle of his backswing. Shutter clicks. That's, that, yeah. that's what this is all about. This Have is more than that, though, right? This is, this is about you can't yell it at all. Yeah. Like, after the ball, ball's in you can't flight. can't say I, it. Right. I think this is a, another example of golf being kind of the archaic, stuffy sport that it is, right? They, they should be embracing the fact that fans want to come on course and yell. Sure, you shouldn't do it in the middle of a backswing. There should be some kind of decorum and etiquette on the course. Uh, but if fans are out there yelling and, and getting excited about what's going on, they should be encouraging that in some capacity. I'm going to beat my chest here. As I think the only person in this room and on this podcast who's actually attended the Masters at Augusta, you can't run. You can't even scurry from hole to hole. You risk being thrown out. Take out your cell phone on the course. Adios, senor. 
I mean, this is a little bit different. This is not your average tournament where we're talking about golf needs to change. This is Augusta. So yeah. things work a little bit differently there. You don't even know who the members of the club are. So a little bit different. Moving on to another topic, MLB had its first broadcast on Facebook. Mets Phillies this week, the first of the 25 exclusive Major League Baseball games we'll see on Facebook this year. And Scott, it got off to a, a waterlogged start, should we say? Yeah, I was watching to see how many viewers, would there be any streaming issues, and the tarp was out. <laughs> so, <laughs> not the greatest of starts. An inauspicious start for you, Evan Novi Williams, on that. On that, it was like. 10,000 people were watching nothing. The problem here, and you saw the criticisms coming in, you could see the comments as well. One, there were emojis and comments on the screen. People didn't realize you could shut that off. So maybe that should be an opt-in feature rather than have it in and you have to opt out. And two, there was no programming. If you go to a rain delay on SNY or on WPIX or whatever station, you roll a, a classic game. You roll some programming in how a rain delay. How about the 1969 Mets? Oh, how about You'll... the 62 Mets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Tom Seaver, here we go. But this this was nothing. It was just a picture of a screen that said rain delay. I'll, I'll give a Tom. millennial thought on that for a second. If I'm watching a game on my computer or my phone, if the game's not happening, there is no programming they can possibly show me that's going to get me to stay on that screen. Right, well, I can leave the sound on, I can browse the internet, I can play a different game on my phone, I can text with my friends. But then There's you have so to check much back. More you, but then you have sure. to check back. When did the game start? Yeah, I see your point. But the I think most compelling Mets what, programming would not have kept me watching Facebook hey, live stream of a rain Michael Barr, let us ask Eben Novi Williams this question. Has he ever in his life, in his 30 years, seen Kiner's Corner? Yeah. Yes. Oh, all right. Well, I, I was going to bet on a no. I was going to bet on a no. <laughs> but again, when, if I was given the option of that or or the entire internet, I'm going to choose the entire internet every time. Well, there was plenty of kvetching, but there's going to be more of this. Man, you choose static. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on to another topic. Nick Saban against LeBron James. Now, what is we're talking two titans. What is this all about? I think we should say that we're recording this in a barbershop, first and foremost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Bar's getting a buzz cut right now. I, I expect our cease and desist letter to arrive from uh, Mr. James. And Joe Lewis now. was the best person ever to box. <laughs> Every time I bring up Rocket Marciano. <laughs> LeBron James's uninterrupted uh, media network, which has a show called The Shop, which is recorded in a barbershop. Uh, apparently sent uh, a not so nice uh, lawyerly a letter, a cease and desist letter. Yeah, like, well, this uh, was our idea to out the University of Alabama, which has a similar type program. Uh, I believe it was called Shop Talk, and now yep. it's called Bama Cuts. Um, this is silly to me. I, I'm not a legal expert. Seems like everything I've read about this uh, makes it sound like LeBron and Uninterrupted don't really have a legal leg to stand on by claiming that the idea of a talk show in a barber shop is their own idea and their own idea alone. I know you like puns. Is this sheer lunacy? Thank you. Just for effect on this one, I tweeted out an old link. Bill Roden, then of the New York Times, hosted David Stern up at a Harlem barbershop to talk basketball. I mean, this was like 2009. This is not a new idea, the venue of conversation in barbershop. I'm not sure if LeBron and Maverick Carter and the folks had have seen that episode or, or know people have done this before, but it's just not a novel idea. I've when, seen Jimmy Kimmel do something like this, too. Who? 
When asked about it, Nick Saban essentially said he didn't even know LeBron James had a talk show in a, in a barber shop, yeah, he which said, is he my favorite Le- form of throwing shade. He said shade, Le- LeBron's a great player, and I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think we'll look for episode two of Alabama soon. I got to say what LeBron said. He said, I'll be damned if I'll allow someone to use our platform. He didn't use the platform. The platform would be uninterrupted. He didn't use the platform. The platform would be where LeBron physically shows his programs. That's not the platform. What he meant to say, I think, is the genre, the idea for the format. But again, LeBron is actually using a format that others before him have used. So that's that's a tight argument right there. We'll see how this hair-raising moment happens. Oh, our thanks to Bloomberg sports reporter Eben Noby Williams. And now let's get into this week's interview. She is the current Big East commissioner and best known for being the first president of the Women's National Basketball Association, serving from 1996 through 2005. She is an attorney, sports executive, and former basketball player. And she is a longtime friend, Michael. We are talking about Val Ackerman. And Val, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be here. Uh, how tired are you? I mean, this is not long after the championship game. I know you didn't get much sleep. Uh, where, where are you on the tired scale? Well, um, you know, I actually um, came down with a bad cold, actually. Oh. San Antonio, so compounding the, you know, the running around and then, of course, the great, um, the great games. A little bit uh, more than that, but all great. And uh, hat goes off, of course, to our, to our team Villanova, which had a, a great showing on Monday night. So all good here. I like you said our team. Does the conference really view it that way? I know they're competitors, but in the end, if I am pick another team, DePaul, Georgetown, Marquette, Providence, St. John, Seton Hall, Xavier, Butler, Creighton, if I'm one of them, am I watching the game going, let's go Villanova? Um, you'd be surprised that the answer is yes, perhaps. You know, our teams have shown great camaraderie, collegiality, support for each other, um, especially the last couple of years as the new group has come together and, and you find people kind of pulling for each other as they've all worked to reestablish the, um, the relevancy of the Big East on the national landscape. So the, the level of support for Villanova within our league was, uh, was actually quite high. This is the second out of three years for Villanova to take it all. You said the first time that you were proud of the vision of the new league, the Big East League, and now I have to ask, now two out of three, you have to feel very vindicated. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Michael. It was, um, you know, it was it was amazing the first time, um, and the second time, you know, it, it certainly didn't get old. But I will say um, that this idea that our presidents had before I was even hired about uh, focusing on basketball, um, having a group of schools that were a lot like each other, which was the case with the original Big East group. But then things changed over the years as football schools came in and the focus changed and the two sports were in some respects vying with each other for the attentions of the universities. Um, That all kind of changed when we reconfigured five years ago. So the idea that basketball schools um, who are focused principally on that sport, we sponsor 22 sports at the Big East, so it's not just basketball that we're involved in, but the fact that they're focused on basketball, it's the priority sport, you know, we have the deal with Fox, which gives us national television exposure. We're still able to play the tournament in the garden, uh, which is a, a great punctuation mark at the end of the year. Um, and then again, we have this group of schools that have um, collegiality and a common sense of values. 
I think, continues to, uh, you know, form the basis of the plan. Uh, so, you know, the same lines probably I used a couple of years ago are still holding up. I want to touch off on something you said just a second ago about football and basketball. They are two different beasts. Can you talk about the differences when you're trying to present that to uh the, the college uh, uh, officials involved about uh, what needs to be done with both sports? Well, uh, as I said, the Big East now does not sponsor football. We, we have sports um, um, in all three seasons. Football's not one. Soccer, I, I would say, is our, quote, football. It's our fall sport. We've got some strength there. We've had teams go on to play in the uh, College Cup, which is college soccer's Final Four. Uh, and we have some pockets of strength elsewhere. But again, um, our schools um, in our conference don't sponsor football. We have three that play it elsewhere, um, but, but not in the Big East. So that does allow us to um, look at basketball as a priority sport. Um, and, you know, in an environment where sports are competing uh, for resources, um, it's very helpful to have uh, one in particular where the presidents and the athletics directors especially and their administrations, their supporters, are kind of focused on one. So, you know, what you have here is truly basketball schools. Um, they, you know, they focus on, on things like facilities, on coaching retention. Um, we can get going in the summer months when other conferences are gearing up for the football season. We're kind of having basketball meetings throughout the year. So um, I, I actually I can't even speak to what it would be like to be running a conference where you had both sports and you had to manage um, your, your football agenda together with your basketball agenda. I'm actually in awe of colleagues um, who, when Fourth of July rolls around, are starting to think about football season because we're, you know, we're finally taking a break um, and turning our attention to, uh, you know, to a, a, you know, a little bit of relaxation um, before we have to start planning for what, again, basketball season. So uh, you know, I don't have that perspective. But I, my sense, you know, is that it does um, create a need to prioritize, and, and we don't have to deal with that in the Big East. We are chatting with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. And Val, somebody does have to pay the bills for all those sports you mentioned. By and large, where is the balance sheet for most of your athletic departments? Well, um, they are, we have smaller budgets, as you might guess, Scott, than, uh, say, the football five conferences. Um, the, the economics of, of college sports are driven largely by television rights fees, and that's the case with the Big East. Um, we have a long-term national television uh, agreement with Fox Sports. That deal was cut before I took over as the commissioner. Um, I was there for the announcement yeah, of that deal. And you, I remember we talked about that early on. Um, and that's, you know, that's the biggest line item uh, on the revenue side of our budget is, is the Fox money. Um, it's a very interesting deal because, it, again, it doesn't include football rights. It's only, it's principally for men's basketball. Fox puts every one of our men's basketball games on one of their platforms, principally Fox Sports 1. So uh, for the conference, that's a, a major line item. The next one is uh, getting to be uh, NCAA basketball units. Um, your, your audience may know that there are monies that are paid out to schools based on their performance in the NCAA basketball unit. Those monies come from the NCAA's national television contract uh, that covers the NCAA tournament in basketball. Many billions um, of dollars from Turner and CBS. Um, over a course of many years, yeah. yes, that's correct. And I don't and think the money, audience. Yeah, I don't think the yeah. audience understands, though, Val, how it works. 
if Villanova wins the tournament, that does mean money for every member of the conference over time period. Over time period, what happens, the way it's paid, is the monies are paid to the conferences um, based on the number of units earned by any of the schools that have participated in the tournament over a given year. And then the conference decides how that money is distributed to the members of the conference. Um, uh, and so that's part of our, you know, our income, so to speak. And then we have, you know, we have some ticket sales money that we get principally from our men's basketball tournament at the Garden. We uh, have some sponsors of the conference that are different from the ones that are sponsors of the schools. Um, and that's largely, that's largely it for us. Um, so what we don't have um, that some of our um, peer schools in basketball have is that football revenue stream. Um, but, you know, but we've done, done I think, you know, the, the results show we've done pretty well competitively at least um, without that. Um, and, you know, importantly, um, our schools, you know, they're funding not only um, their basketball programs but all the other sports on campus that they run and they provide uh, opportunities for their student-athletes for. Yeah, the question that jumps out at me then is how do you budget if you're not sure, let alone the other schools, but you're not sure if you're going to go to the tournament, you don't know how far you're going to go, and you certainly can't predict how far the other teams in the conference are going to go. Do you budget without any tournament money, and then that's gravy? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, I mean, this, all right, no, that's the we, safe, smart way to do prepare, it. When we prepare our budgets for the following year, we, we have some you know projections on how we will do in, for example, um, our men's basketball tournament ticket sales, uh, how we'll do on the sponsor front, how we'll do in the men's basketball tournament, and how that would translate into units. Um, you know, for most... Um, Organizations that have television rights agreements, those numbers are pegged, so those are sort of set and, and not changeable. But all the other things, it's just like any company's budgeting process, you, you know, where you might have variables. You make some conservative projections, and then you, know, you hope you hit your numbers, and then if you do better than you expected, it becomes, uh, it becomes surplus that everyone's you know, presumably happy about. Yeah, then, you, then you buy back stock. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. And in your past, for eight years, you were president of the WNBA from 1996 to 2005. Can you take us through that of what it was like to be the head of the WNBA? And where do you see the WNBA heading today? Well, it was an amazing uh, experience all the way around. Um, you know, the vision of David Stern. Um, who, you know, I think when he became commissioner uh, in 1984 actually had this idea that someday the NBA would front a women's pro league, and it was just a matter of when. Um, so, you know, it really, you know, sort of took shape in the early 90s. We had become partners with USA Basketball in the management of their men's national team that, of course, debuted in Barcelona in 92, um, went to Toronto in 94 for the uh, – FIBA World Championship, the first time NBA players had been in that event, and then, of course, Atlanta in 96. And it was in that 94-96 time frame that we started as a we, meaning, um, you know, those of us at the NBA at that time who were affiliated with the USA basketball effort, Russ Granick, um, you know, others who were very involved. Uh, hey, you know, could we do this on the women's side? Could we have a dream team uh, on the women's side that would be the best players we have uh, representing the USA, and in our case, in the case of women's basketball, it was the idea was can we use them as a way to test the waters, 
and see what the market might be for elite women's basketball here in the U.S. And so that's what we did uh, around the 96 women's Olympic team in Atlanta. We put that team together um, 10 months out from the Olympics. They toured the U.S. and the world, drew a great response. And that was when we became convinced that if there were to be a WNBA, um, it could be uh, very well received. So I, you know, I was involved in that. Um, as you noted, I, I was the first president. It was an amazing time for women's basketball coming out of Atlanta, where we won the gold medal. Women's college basketball was cresting at that time with rivalries like, you know, UConn and Tennessee, most of all. And um, it was just an, an incredible experience uh, to be part of, you know, bringing women's pro basketball um, with the, you know, with the NBA behind it, with the power of national television. We had agreements with NBC, ESPN, and Lifetime to launch the league. Um, and to see the, the response, to see um, how, you know, women's pro basketball players could help, um, you know, further the idea that women could play sports and be role models and um, have, have fan bases. It, it, was, uh, it was inspiring. And uh, the league now, 20, I think going into its 22nd season, uh, withstanding the test of time, um, do, doing more than any other women's pro team sports pro league has ever done is a, is a pretty amazing thing. I remember when the WNBA made its debut, and it was the early years, there were games that were on uh, Lifetime. And I didn't think that was a, that was a great I, – I thought it was a great idea is what I'm trying to say. And I just wonder, you know – we we see other avenues like that, maybe going back to Lifetime and, and other channels like that to expand uh, the exposure of the WNBA. Well, the idea at the time, and uh, you know, was that uh, we could combine a major network, NBC, uh, linear network with ESPN, um, of course, given their dominance in the uh, national cable space, with a, quote, women's network that it would allow the league to reach the expected female demographic. I always thought that was odd, Val, because I liked 30-something. I, th- I thought it was a great show. I, I'm Edwards Wick and Marshall Herskovitz, great writers, but it would always say television for women. I felt like I wasn't welcome. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you were and you weren't, I think. <laughs> yes. It turned you away, you know, if you had sort of turned on the set. But, but I think they, they were trying to reach, you know, someone different, and that was the case. I think with the WNBA, uh, but interestingly, guys, you know the viewership for women's um, professional basketball, women's college basketball is really largely male. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, probably a high forty, mid forty percent female demographic. But the fact is, the majority of viewers really still are are men for uh, for basketball on television. So uh, I can't speak to where the league is now. Of course, I haven't been there in a while um, in terms of reaching that particular demographic. But it did allow us to do some um, some cool programming, um, you know, to play up the fact that they weren't just you know um, basketball players, but they were female. They had different kinds of stories. Um, th- there was a different demographic, particularly in arena. Um, you know, when when I was with the WNBA, the in arena fan base was very heavily female, and I believe that's still clo- largely the case today. So uh, it was a good complement of networks. I think. I think the. I think that it was well conceived. We are chatting with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. And, Val, let me throw some numbers out at you, and you let me know as a commissioner what they mean or if it's overblown. This is what these universities spend on basketball each year. Villanova spends about $11 million a year. DePaul, also a Big East school, spends five. So that's about half. 
Kentucky and Duke, about $19 million. Will that gap continue to widen? And if so, how does Villanova stay Villanova if they just can't compete from a revenue perspective? My, my guess is that the gap will grow because the revenues that the uh, five, big, biggest five football conferences are, um, are reaping from their f- television agreements, um, just based on published reports I've seen, um, are, are continuing to grow. And the fact is that, that schools like Villanova and DePaul and the others in the Big East and others in schools that don't have football at that level are not keeping pace with that. So that, um, you know, so that, that, is, that would be my forecast. On, on that question. Um, so does that, that mean ma- a management special? You're going to tell Jay Wright and, or, or everybody has to do more with less? Yeah, I'm not telling him. He's doing enough right now, go, I guess. Yeah. Right. He'll have to go to Mark Jackson, his athletics director, yeah. Father Peter Donnie, who is president, and work that out with them. But what I will say is while I can't really speak to you know, the, the precise numbers and w- what goes to what, I'm, I'm guessing that those numbers account for um, everything from, um, from, from coaching salaries to uh, other administrative staff that work on basketball, to, um, to method of travel, um, to you know, everything that they have to pay for to support the team, which is a lot. I mean, a team at that level, um, it's just a lot that goes into it. It's a, it's a kind of a complex operation. And, um, and so, um, you, know, that, that, you know, that how Villanova keeps up is they stay focused on basketball, um, they make good decisions about how they spend their money. They probably won't be able to do things that um, schools with, you know, double or triple or quadruple the revenue streams have. But, uh, you know, it's always been that way. I mean, this isn't a, you know, 2018 issue. This was, this was going on, you know, 40 years ago because there, were, there have always been imbalances in the budgets that some schools have compared, big publics would have compared to small privates, big football schools have compared to schools that don't have football. So as I, you know, as I mentioned, that I think is a macro, long-term issue. Um, but the good news is, you know, the tournament is holding up in spite of this range of schools. Look at this year. You have a school like Loyola, Chicago, uh, which I'm sure has a budget more, more along the lines of the smaller schools than the bigger schools, making it to the Final Four. I think that's the beauty of the NCAA tournament, that you have these Cinderella schools that in a single-game situation can knock off a school that's, you know, that's bigger with more alums and has a, has a larger revenue stream to work off of. Again, I, you know, I think that's, that's part of the reason that event has such appeal. You have mentioned the media contract with Fox already. You have mentioned David Stern, a.k.a. Digital Dave, back in the day. Uh, John Wildack, the Syracuse AD, was on this program not long ago, and we spoke about media, media, media. Where is the Big East in terms of its ability to generate content that people want? Where does the Big East reside right now? And how can you capitalize on all the new, whether it's Turner's new OTT, ESPN Plus? I mean, who can keep track? There are so many more new platforms that are thirsting for content. Well, you know, the answer to that is we, we monitor the landscape. I mean, you know, that's, that's what every conference does. So it can try, because uh, it's, it's hard to do, but you can try to keep pace with all of these emerging platforms, all of these new technologies. That's, you know, we've brought in uh, consultants and experts to speak to our board just so they know uh, what's out there and that we can begin to get ready for uh, our next set of discussions with, with Fox Sports. We, we're in the middle of a long-term deal. Um, you know, we don't expect to be in discussions with them for some time. 
Um, but in the meantime, you know, at least I think it's my job to try to keep up with what's going on out there. Many of the experts we've talked to um, foresee uh, continued disruption in the space um, and, and that the idea that things may not, quote, settle down for five to six to seven to eight years. Uh, and there will be other uh, rights negotiations that will be taking place before we, you know, we're back at the table with Fox. So uh, it's keeping up. It's working with Fox to, to try to do some sampling, if we can, uh, with digital platforms, just so we can all get a feel for what it would be, would be like to, for example, you know, stream on a digital platform um, versus linear television. We did create, um, our, in our second year of the new Big East, um, a digital platform called Big East Digital Network, that's produced by a third-party company, and we distribute that on the Fox Sports Go mobile app. Um, and, and we have some basketball programming that we've put on there on top of the Olympic sports, women's basketball, that principally resides on BEDN. So we, you know, we sort of knew early that in order to supplement what we're getting on Fox and begin to sort of position ourselves, um, we, needed to, uh, you know, we needed to take that leap. Um, so that's, you know, that's been an important um, step for us as well. And then, you know, every organization is just sort of generally on social media. So we have a team of people at our conference office that are, you know, putting us on all the major platforms so that we can engage, you know, with our fans wherever they are. You need to hire that Loyola Chicago guy. He was we great, the social to. media director. He was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so, you know, and you have, you know, a lot of young people involved. Um, in that space as well, just because of their facility with the platforms. I have to ask you this. I have to get philosophical. I saw this on your Bloomberg page that we have, and it's uh, tweet this. You said 90% of life is about showing up. Can you can you expand on that? Because uh, I think a lot of kids need to hear that. I have used that. I was actually um, got that from uh, someone in my life when I was a young person, and, and I kind of read it. To mean um, that a lot of life is, um, you know, is 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 going to some extra, extracurricular activity or a social event or a networking event, particularly for young people, um, especially on days when you kind of have second thoughts. Hey, I'm I'm too tired to do that. I know I signed up for that, but now it's, you know, now that day is here, and I really don't want to go. I think sometimes it's easy to blow things off that you committed to because you're tired or have some other excuse. But uh, one, you know, I believe in honoring commitments. Um, and then two, I think when you do show up, um, you always, I find you always meet somebody or have a conversation with someone or have some interaction that um, could mean something. It could mean a new contact. It could mean a new friend. Um, it could mean something that changes your life. Um, so that's a credo that, that I live by. I sometimes overcommit, um, but, you know, that's kind of how I'm hardwired. But I do think if, if young people can get themselves out there, meet people particularly, and you all know this on the sports business, which is such a relationship business. The, the more and the better relationships that you have, um, I think the better you'll do in this profession. You'll like this one, Val. You know what I tell kids when they ask me for advice getting into the industry and all that, and they, that always happens, that they hear the right place, right time. I say, no, 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 that, that is not the right credo here. It's be someplace all the time. Good one, Scott. Yeah, yeah. I'll, so, I'll write Mike, that one too. That'll you can write that one down. It'll be on I'll your. Write that one down yeah, Michael too. Barr will ask you about that the next time you're on. It's on your Bloomberg <laughs> bio page. Great, great stuff, guys. All right, Val. Thank you so much, Val Ackerman, welcome, the Big guys. East Commissioner. Yep. Thanks, guys. Great being on. Takeaways from the interview with Val Ackerman. I think I'm impressed that they're not even dealing now with football, just basketball. And what's amazing is that their plate is 
is very full. I mean, even though, yes, they have a month down or two, but it, their plate is very full, and, and it's, uh, it's an ongoing business. Yeah, the takeaway, I'm almost the same as you. They're showing another way. There's another way to conduct big-time college sports. Who would have funk that you could really produce a national champion in basketball without the revenue from football? And everybody knows football is the big moneymaker, and it fuels everything else. It helps you build the facilities that attract the best recruits, the, the training tables, pretty much everything. But this conference has decided we don't need the headaches that come along with that football success or the edifice complex or the 100,000-seat stadium. They said, forget it. And yet, here's Villanova, tiny outside of, Pencil, outside of Pit, or, uh, Philadelphia, Here's Little Nova and the Jay Wright engine that could two championships in three years. That's pretty darn good. More with less. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business and Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week, and it is 65. Let's fess up. We discussed this one ahead of time because we thought it was cool. I'm guessing people might not know this, even if they're hockey fans, that when, you, when you're when you on a team that wins the Stanley Cup, your name gets etched on that cup. Right. But there's only so much room. So you know what happens? About 65 years after your name is etched on, it gets pulled off. And and we're talking about some big names here. We're talking about Gordy Howe. We're Mr. talking Hockey, about yeah. we're talking about the it, Rocket Richard. There I, is, it, is, it does not discriminate. It doesn't matter. This is a time thing. Sixty about sixty-five years, your time is up. They need to make room for the new people whose names get to come on the cup. They they peel you off, they flatten it out, and it goes in the Hall of Fame. But it's not on the cup anymore. That is why this trophy is considered perhaps the most regal in all of sports. Traditions like this. Doesn't matter if you're Gordy Howe. Doesn't matter if you're Rocket Richard. Doesn't matter if you're a no-name fourth-line left wing. Gordy's gone. It's been his, he's had his time. It's time for the new people. By the way, I got a chance to touch the cup one time. It was cool. I'll fess up. I was in the locker room, 1994 Rangers. I knew some folks there, and I might have. I might have taken a quick little sip from the cup in 94 and by the way sacrilegious i grew up an islanders fan oh, <laughs> oh sorry trots and bossy <laughs> and billy smith sorry guys oh man see now if you wanted me to work in detroit i was in detroit when the red wings won the stanley cup they see have, what i did there i did i did oh. dilly 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 <laughs> You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 